Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. So there are about six weeks until the Wright State students are fully back. Um, some of them are here. 
But uh, I wanted to take this next, these next six weeks and actually go through the book of Galatians. We did, if you were here with us last year during the, uh, what we call ordinary time, we went through the book of Hebrews and we went chapter by chapter. And this time we're going to do the same thing with the book of Galatians. Why Galatians? I believe Galatians combats a severe error that is extremely important both for the purity of the gospel as a person or a believer, but also how you articulate the gospel. Sometimes, although we understand the gospel by free grace, when we go and turn and preach the gospel or share with others, especially because we have such a high standard of excellence in this church in terms of our walking out of our sanctification, the temptation is, although subtle but present, the temptation is to let the gospel's free offer of grace be melded together with the, the sort of works that one might assign to what's called sanctification. And so the, the letter to the Galatians combats an error And that error is alive and well today in the church. That error is alive and well, and it is subtle, and it is hard to detect. Nevertheless, what Paul does in his letter, in in giving these strong warnings, these, these sharp corrections, is vital for the purity of the Galatian churches. And so I thought it would be helpful for us as a body, especially when we consider moving in the fall to a larger season of outreach. Now, you might say, well, I'm not planning to go on right state and share the gospel. And if you were here during the Sunday school hour, you may have heard this idea that you share or you're discipling people into whatever you're interested in. And it's so important that you understand the principle that God set at work in the very beginning chapter of the Bible, that every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. You are naturally discipling people into things that you're motivated about. And so even though you might not consider yourself as an evangelist, you are to do the work of an evangelist. There will be people who come in among us. There will be people who you meet, whether it be here at church or throughout your working life or in your neighborhood. And you need to be extremely clear in how you present the gospel. But not only in your evangelism, you also need to know it for your own heart and the way that you war against the temptations of Satan to dissuade you from Christ or to distract you from Christ. And so I think this will be a wonderful study. We're going to go chapter by chapter over the next six weeks, even though in this first chapter, I I think there's not as great of a chapter break as there could be. Nevertheless, we're just going to go chapter by chapter. They're in good enough places for our our consideration. So getting started, I want to just look at three things in this first chapter. First, I want to look at how Paul greets these Galatian churches. It's important to note this word churches here is plural. There is obviously some, not division, but multiplication in the church in Galatia. Uh, Sometimes when we read the epistles, we imagine our church that we're in being like the only church in the city, and then we just kind of backdate that to Ephesus or what have you. No, there were many congregations in the city. It was, a, it was although it was 2,000 years ago, there were many people in Galatia. There, there, they probably had enough Christians that they couldn't fit in one building. Just so it's, it's not like there's this primitive hut and Paul was writing a letter to 10 people and one guy stood up and read the letter. No, he's writing to, he's writing to an area 
And I think that's important to understand. This is a doctrine which was invading their culture in Galatia, not just one church. Just like today, we talk about doctrines which are warring against the American church. One of those might be nationalism, right? That might be something you might identify, or, or antinomianism. You've heard that word here in this church before. The idea is that there's a war going on against the Galatian churches. I want to look at that greeting very clearly because Paul actually begins his attack in the greeting. We're going to see what I mean by that. Then I want to look at his sharp correction and his opposition to the false gospel. He doesn't exactly name what the problem is, but we know through the rest of the book, and so we'll introduce the problem. But actually what he says in the introduction and in the opposition, and then finally his conversion story, or rather God's conversion story of Paul, shows us the very nature of the Galatian error. We're going to see throughout this series that there was this leaf issue circumcision and taking on the obligation to do the works of the law to be justified. But that wasn't where the heresy began. As we'll see, the heresy actually began through the fear of man and that the fear of man led to their susceptibility to be persuaded away from Christ. And that fear of man issue, as Paul will show you in these next six chapters, actually needs to be answered by this grand theme of the sovereignty and glory of God. That is why I've entitled this message, and really this will invade the entire, in the entire series, is what, what does it mean for Paul to be called by God through the gospel? So let's get started. Paul immediately opens his letter, and it's important to notice, if you've ever read any of the other epistles, that Paul interrupts his opening statement. Usually Paul will say something like this, Paul, an apostle and bondservant of Jesus Christ through the grace of God, for the Gentiles. Or he'll say something like, Paul, an apostle and servant, or Paul, a servant or or a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But look at what he does in the very first verse. He interrupts himself, and if you are reading in the ESV, they put a little dash, and the reason for that is because it doesn't make any sense without the dash. It's kind of like if you were speaking in English and then you said, you know, I drove my car, oh, the Jetta that I bought in 2014 or 2004 to the store that day, right? You'd have to put parentheses or commas to brace that phrase. It interrupts the flow and he does it and it jars the ear. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Christ Jesus and God, the father who raised him from the dead. See, Paul interrupts himself on purpose in order to begin to strike at what I said was the root error, which led to the fruit error. And this root error, as Paul shows us, is the fear of man. He says his foundation or the basis for his authority, the purity of his leadership is that he was an apostle, not ordained by men, but ordained by Jesus Christ. And this apostleship was unique to him. He says, not only is he writing this letter, he then says, and all the brothers who are with me. It's important to catch this. We often think of Paul as writing these letters to churches, but if you read the book of Acts and if you read the rest of these letters, you'll see that Paul is working with a team. It is not just Paul's original statement that he is this apostle, but he says, all the brothers who are with me are also sending this letter. And all the brothers who are with them, 
with him, they're not validating in an origination sense Paul's message, but they are speaking in concert. It's important to understand this. Paul is saying, I have the right to write this letter, and as I'm writing this, all the brothers agreed. We all came to a decision saying, you know what? We can't let Galatia go off into this error. We have to speak up. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle not ordained by man, but ordained through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And all the brothers who are with me are writing as well. Immediately we detect the first undercurrent of the crisis in the Galatian heresy. It is this, it is turning aside from the gospel and knowledge of God, the truth and wisdom that God gives, and beginning to listen to the doctrines and opinions of men. He says, I'm an apostle, not from men, nor through man. That is to say, he did not receive the gospel, he did not receive his apostolic message through the ordination of men. That's not to say that ordination through a church is wrong, but rather it is to say what is the source of his apostleship or what is the source of the apostolic message that he brings. And the reason I emphasize message is because of what Paul says in just a few verses from now. Though this introduction is cutting, Paul's opening words are gracious. Why are they gracious? Because they remind the Galatian Christians of the purity of the faith. What is the Christian faith? Is that Jesus Christ was raised by the Father from the dead. That is what Paul bases his whole authority on, is is without this fact, without the historic knowledge, and without the reality of Jesus Christ appearing to Paul and telling him, yes, Paul, I did raise from the dead. Without that knowledge, Paul would have no right. And indeed, he would not only have no right, but he would have nothing to say. Nevertheless, this is grace. He immediately begins attacking. Why? Because like a surgeon, he is preparing the dressing wound for for the incision. He's about to cut extremely deeply, and he's setting the context for his surgical work. He then goes on to say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues to remind them of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Paul, you're just saying, we remember, these are all flowery words. We've heard all of this before. You know, the the grace, you know, God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's nice flowery language. No, Paul's using those specific words because he wants to actually remind them, you didn't come to Jesus Christ through your own means, but rather it was Jesus Christ who offered up his blood And it was done according to not the Galatian Christian's will, but the will of God the Father. He's immediately attacking, again, the base of their perversion of the gospel, where they've reverted to the works of the flesh or the works of trying to keep the law to be at right with God. Paul emphasizes again in these very verses the purity of the gospel. The Galatian Christians do not escape the present evil age through their own effort nor do they do it through their own planning. It is neither their strength nor their idea. They didn't come up with the plan, and they didn't carry out the work. Paul says, you were redeemed from this present evil age through Jesus, and Jesus offered himself up 
through the will of God the Father. That is exactly what he's attacking. And before we go further, we have to see this as a picture of the goal of the gospel, that they would be delivered from the evils of the world unto the praise of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul is writing a letter to the Thessalonian Christians, and he's saying that messengers have come and have told us, and then this is a wonderful summary statement of what happens in the gospel, how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what the gospel will bear fruit in. It's turning away from dead works, serving up idols, right? Doing some sort of behavior, offering food, offering drink, offering some sort of animal to this statue or, or this shaped or carved image. How they've turned away from dead works, fruitless works, works serving dead stones and dead wood, to serving the living and true God. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that you have been delivered from the present evil age to Jesus Christ. That you've been transformed, you've escaped the wrath that's coming not just on the Roman culture, the Roman empire in that generation, but indeed all of the wrath of God which is on the sin-filled world. You've been delivered from the present evil age and you've been ushered into this new community of the church in which you are all serving the Lord together. This was what we were talking about in Romans 12 last week, how they were to present themselves not doing dead works, but as a living sacrifice, persisting in the worship of the one true God. Before continuing to the next uh, part of this verse, you must notice what is missing. If you look at any of the other letters that Paul has written to the churches in the New Testament, the ones that are captured show us an introduction, an address, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he names to whom he's writing, and then he issues a prayer Grace and peace be to you, some, some form of that. And then immediately after that introduction of grace, he then offers up a thanksgiving. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ, or I remember you always giving thanks to him. Here, he doesn't have any statement of thanksgiving. Between verses 5 and 6, there is no statement at all. Paul doesn't say anything with regard to thanking the Father for the Galatian Christians. And you have to ask yourself the question, why does he do that? Now, if you're the Galatian Christians, perhaps you didn't catch this. We don't really know whether the Galatian Christians had this letter and all the other letters that Paul had already begun to write, although we know that they circulated them from the earliest days. That is, when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, they would have you know, made a copy of it and passed it along or taken a copy with them and said, hey, here's what Paul wrote to us. We thought it might be helpful for you. From the earliest days of receiving the letters, the churches were engaged in disseminating the projects or the letters to the other churches. And in fact, the historians have actually found certain letters in which they've, they erased the name and changed it to another church. And the reason isn't to like manufacture some heretical doctrine. It was to say, like, here's this copy, and here's the one that goes over here. And there's actually some belief that Paul wrote a few of the letters as form letters. Like, you know, when you sign up for a mailing list, and it says, 
Dear John Weiss, thank you for signing. No one handcrafted that, that letter. Nevertheless, Paul is addressing this one specific to Galatia. The point is, they may not have seen the thanksgiving being omitted, but it's actually the case that Paul is using a standard mode of speech. Just like when you go through school today, you're taught how to write a letter and you're taught how to write a check. Uh, well, at least I know I was in my education. I'm not sure if you received it, but they taught us how to address letters and they showed us how to write greetings. And this type of form, the, the apostolic letter, was a common mode of communication. And so it should be striking to the Galatians, and if it's not striking to them, at least it is striking to us. Why does Paul not include a thanksgiving statement? Why? Because I'm convinced that Paul was so worried with what was happening in Galatia that he A, wasted no time in getting to the heart of the matter, and B, did not want to provide any false assurance. He didn't want to give them any room for any of the Galatian Christians to say, well, you know, I was part of that Thanksgiving part of the letter, and y'all are part of the rest of the problem part of the letter. Isn't that wonderful how you pay, play, uh, play pitchfork with the Word of God? Have you ever seen a, a farmer dishing out hay? You know, the, the hay is there, and then they take the pitchfork and they throw it over their back. That's, that's what we do with the Word of God. Boy, I hope Susan, wrote, you know, heard this message today. Or, boy, I, I hope Jim heard this message today. Or, Joe Bob, you know, he, he needed to come. He was missing today. He is not giving any room for them to think, well, you know, at least there's some evidence of the grace of God. What Paul is saying is that there is such a danger going on in Galatia, I don't want anybody to miss the sharp incision of my next few words. I'm going to get to the heart of the matter immediately. Paul acts immediately and he begins to speak to the spiritual suicide the Galatians have embarked upon. This is the middle point of what I think is this first chapter. In verse 6, he goes on to say, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, there is one pure, true gospel, and it is this. It's exactly what John the Baptist began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Most Christians hear a gospel that is, there is a free offer of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they never hear, oh, by the way, that is simultaneously going to occur with a repentance from dead works and a repentance from sin. Those things go hand in hand. Why is the grace of God needed for someone to respond in the gospel? Because when a sinner is presented with the offer of free grace, they do not have power to repent from sin. That power must come from nothing other than the quickening of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, not him who presented Christ and made you an offer the one who called you forth in the grace of Christ, namely the Father. Paul says that the Galatians are tolerating these false teachers, and that toleration has led to deserting him who called you. Who is the one who called them? It's the Father. 
The Father God is in the gospel. He is the one who is speaking by the Spirit, calling forth the sons and daughters of of God to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I'm shocked that you're deserting the Father. You've run away. You're becoming self-made orphans. You've cut yourself off from the triune community that you've been called into, and I'm shocked. And that is why I'm writing this strongly, strongly worded letter. I'm astonished. Paul says, I can't put it in the grid of how I think about the churches of Jesus Christ. I have no room on my grid to understand what's going on. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The one who called them is exactly the point of this chapter, and I, indeed I believe the entire book, that the Father is the one who called not just Paul to be an apostle, but also these Galatian Christians for them to each respond to Jesus Christ. That the Father is involved in calling sinners to himself to become new creations through the free offer of the atoning blood of Jesus. And that free offer accords with turning from sin and dead works and turning toward Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says, you're turning back. You turned to the Father. You turned to the author of life. You repented from sin. And now I'm shocked you're turning back again. You've, you've become double-minded. You thought about Christ and now you've turned away and are pursuing something else. What exactly is the distortion that Paul is talking about? He doesn't name it here. He doesn't name the fruit issue, but he does name the root issue, that you've begun to entertain your ears with the teachings of false teachers. But just so you know, we're going to get to it in the the next parts of this series, but just so you know, the error, the distortion of the gospel that was going on in Galatia was this, that some Judaizers, people who were leaving churches and going and becoming self-made apostles, they were going to these other churches, the writings of John also deal with this in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and these false teachers have come and they've begun to tell the Galatian Christians that receiving Jesus Christ is not enough, but that they also, to be right with God, must receive circumcision and must begin obeying the cultural provisions of the Jewish law. That is what I mean by Judaizing. I don't mean that they were going around and saying, you should believe the Ten Commandments are authoritative for you. That's not what the Judaizers were saying. Everyone involved in Christianity at this point in time held that the Ten Commandments were still authoritative. That is, the moral implications of the law of God were not part of the dispute of the Galatian heresy. The problem was not whether or not we should love God and love our neighbor. As Christ himself said, all of the law and prophets hang on two commandments. It's not like Paul was saying, you know, you just need to receive free grace and there's nothing you have to do. But rather, Paul is saying that there's been a perversion of what it means to receive the gospel. To receive the gospel, according to these Judaizers, one must become a part of Christ, they must be baptized, and then also receive circumcision, and then begin to carry out the works of the law. That is, to do the works of the law so as to obey obey them. This is what I mean by justification, is that they considered the works of the Jewish cultural law to be necessary for someone to be right with God. 
That's what I mean by justification or righteousness, to be put right with God. That is what these people are saying. They're saying, well, you know, it's good, Gentile, that you've become a Christian because Jesus was actually, you know, the Messiah. But you got to understand that, you know, we serve a Jewish Messiah. And so if you really want to be a part of Christ, you have to do the things that Christ would have done in observing the law and receiving circumcision and purifying himself through the ritual modes of purification. And what Paul would say is, that is a distortion of Jesus Christ himself. That is to say that the Judaizers were saying Christ isn't enough. You need to add on these two or three other things. Receiving circumcision and beginning to observe the cultural provisions of the law. These Judaizers, according to Paul, are troubling the Galatians with false teaching and they're abusing and and disturbing the sheep. Think about it like this. If the Judaizers are right, and I'm a sheep in the fold of Jesus Christ, I've come into this sheepfold, and now the Judaizers are saying, you know, Jesus is a good shepherd, and that's true, and you're okay in his pen, but oh, by the way, you need to go to Moses and receive what Moses had to say about how to be right with God. You need to begin to obey the cultural provisions. That is, Jesus, it's good to be united to Jesus, but you need to add on circumcision and observance of the law. What does that do? According to Paul, it's a distortion of the gospel so far as for him to call it another gospel entirely. To use a very simple illustration, if you imagine a glass of water, now I want you to add a tablespoon of bleach to the glass of water. Is it still clear? Is it still water? Are you going to drink it? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying by adding even just this tiny little bit of self-made effort, of self-made appearance, of trying to reach up into the heavenlies and take God down for yourself, attempting to put yourself at right with God on your own merit and effort, you have mixed poison into the pure water of the gospel. That's exactly what Paul is doing. And Paul, out of his love for the sheep, points out those who have snuck in as wolves. They are trying to bring them away from Jesus Christ and draw them after themselves. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word accursed is actually the word anathema, and it has this connotation of a raising up of someone to God to let God deal with them. Isn't that an amazing statement? The ESV is so nice that it says, you know, accursed, and it's true. That's a right translation, but the connotation is, Paul's saying, hey, the ones who have snuck in among you trying to hide like little camouflage spies among this pure new army of Jesus Christ, I want God to come and observe them. I want to raise them up to let God, the judge of all, know exactly what they're teaching. This is what Paul is saying is the most important ingredient for the Galatians, that they begin to understand we ought not to tolerate false teaching. This is why I'm so careful in the teachers and preachers that I emphasize that we teach, the ones we put in the recommendation Uh, Because whenever you are sharing something from a teacher, by nature, you're somewhat endorsing their 
position as either a teacher of the church of Jesus Christ or as someone who you could learn from. That's what Paul is saying here is do not tolerate false teachers. See, not all the Galatian Christians had received circumcision. And not all of them had begun to do the works of the law or to seek to be justified by God. The problem isn't just doing the thing. The problem is also tolerating those false teachers. They should have given them no hearing at all or after they had stated their case clearly, begun to debate them and then finally expel them from being a, be, having this self-proclaimed position of apostolic authority. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again. What, what does Paul mean? He says in verse 8, but I think he's also implying that part of the message that the apostles gave to the churches as they found them was, hey, warnings, guess what, guys? After we leave, other people are going to come and they're going to try to pervert the gospel. You ought to be on the lookout. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one, he, to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul insists that those who come as messengers or angels should bring the same message or evangel. In the, in the Greek, it's quite clear here, the word evangelist and the word angel or gospel and messenger are actually the, kind of the same word with just an added on meaning. It captures a greater vision. That is to say, the messenger ought to bring a pure message, and if he doesn't bring a pure message, he's not a good messenger. He's a false messenger. That's what Paul is saying is, if an angel from heaven or a messenger from Jesus Christ comes to you, later on in this book, you'll hear Paul use the phrase, you receive me as an angel from God. And and that word actually just means messenger. They're not saying like they thought Paul was an angel. He's saying you received the message and because you received the message, you gave proof that you considered me a right messenger. Paul's saying here that the angel from heaven who comes to preach or the messenger from heaven who comes to preach ought to share the same message. That is, there won't be a change in God's message to the Galatian church. Again, Paul highlights how the false gospel is at work, and he does it by inciting the fear of man. That theme of the fear of man is going to show up over and over again in this letter. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's saying that there's an offense to the gospel, which is this, that God is the one who effectually calls. God is the one who redeems and translates people from the, and delivers them from the evil age to Jesus Christ. And if it were not the case, Paul would not preach that way. But if Paul was preaching to please man, then he would flatter men with his teaching. He would be someone who entertains with his teaching or flatters or curries favor with them by just being an encourager alone and never bringing rebuke or just saying, you know, flattering the flesh of man saying, you can do it if you try hard enough and use the grace of God. That's a false gospel. You can't do it even if you try hard enough. And by do it, I mean put yourself right with God. After you're a new creation and filled with the Holy Spirit, totally different conversation. But Paul is now saying that if you add even a mixture of self-effort apart from the grace of God, you cannot be receiving Jesus Christ. You cannot be a pure servant of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Isn't that amazing? He's highlighting over and over again, the fear of man is the central error of the Galatian Christians. We think it's the Judaizing teaching. We think it's receiving circumcision. But the core issue that Paul's saying at the very beginning of the letter is, you have tolerated and exalted the opinion of man over and against the knowledge of God. The true pure gospel, therefore, is at odds with the fear of man and rests upon one thing, the manifest wisdom of God. As I was preparing last night, I was just so moved by the grace of God in in all of this because Paul uses a phrase in another one of his letters. He describes the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh through the incarnation to do the works of his Father. He calls that the manifest wisdom of God or the secret mystery of God which was hidden for ages. And now it's been perfectly revealed through Jesus Christ, through his atoning work and through his resurrection. Because Paul's gospel was by a revelation of Jesus Christ, therefore all glory and praise belongs to God. This is so important because this, is, this will shape every moment of your life. I'm not even exaggerating at all for the sake of effect. What you understand about how you do your Christian walk matters extremely. And it matters based on this foundation. If God is the author of my faith, then he gets the glory. If the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the energy to obey the word of God, then he gets the glory. This is one of the foundational tenets of what we call the Reformation. It's one of the solas, and it means sola dea gloria. It means to God alone is the glory. That is, God deserves all the praise and all the credit for my conversion. And not only my conversion, but my daily obedience. All of it is for the praise of God. It's not just done for God, it's done through God. It's done through the grace that God supplies. Paul emphasizes this fact. And he does it by stating the beginning of his conversion as the conversion that's carried out by God. Are you, do you know what a meme is? I think I've shared this before. A meme is a great tool um, that God has given the internet for, for making jokes. But I, I think satire is actually extremely helpful from time to time. And it's this, I, I saw this meme the other day. I thought about putting it up, but I, I didn't want to, uh, just for propriety's sake. But... The meme is basically, you can just imagine, the meme is a picture of Paul on a donkey, or he's actually just fallen off the donkey, and there's a, you know, a drawing of a white figure, Jesus, and basically on the meme, it has something to do with, it says something to the effect of, so, you know, there I was on the road when I asked Jesus to come into my heart. <laughs> and the point, the point that I'm getting at, and I think the point that Paul is saying is, My gospel and my apostleship didn't come from man, but it didn't just come from other men. It also didn't come from me. That is, Jesus Christ revealed himself to me. That's what Paul says, that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Paul was a straight A student in Judaism. He was an AP student. He had letters to Harvard and Yale. Paul had the best teachers. Paul had the best authority. He probably was getting paid to be a scribe already. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul was doing at what Jesus Christ said. He, he told his disciples, be careful, you know, because there's going to be a time when those who kill you are going to be thinking that they're serving God. That's what Paul was doing. He doesn't immediately proceed with a heroic story of his search for Christ, but indeed actually the opposite. Paul was on his way in Acts chapter 7, he was on, or excuse me, 9, Paul was on his way to go kill Christians in the city of Damascus. That was his mission. It was like, it would like being saying like, you know, here I was a part of ISIS when I suddenly joined the Red Cross. That's, that's how shocking this next sentence should be. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. What is Paul saying? I didn't get converted of my own, but God the Father who sovereignly elected from eternity past, when he called me, When he was pleased, he revealed his son to me. The calling of the Father and the revelation of Jesus Christ to Paul are two wonderful, beautiful things, part of the same conversion that Paul could not initiate. Guess what? You can't make Jesus appear to the Apostle Paul. No one but Jesus can do that. No one but the Father can actually rot out the salvation that is planned for one of his children. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You see, he he was intended by God to go to Damascus. God kind of interrupted the journey. The point is, God the Father was pleased to reveal his son, not Paul. In Acts chapter 9, it says that all of this happened while Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Think about that. Here I was with, you know, munitions and, and armaments in my pickup truck, and I was on my way to go murder Christians or to go arrest Christians and throw them in jail or to go beat up Christians and burn down their churches or to go take their leader named Stephen and incite a mob of other Judaizing Jews and kill him with stones as I managed the coats. That's what it says in, in Acts chapter 7. Paul was, Paul was there. He, it says that the witnesses of, of what Stephen was preaching, they threw their coats down at, at Paul's feet. What does that mean? It means Paul was kind of the guy who was managing the coat closet at the meeting where they killed Stephen. That's who we're reading right now. That sort of transformation does not come from man. After this startling encounter, Paul spends three years ministering Christ to those churches before going up to Peter. And Peter, uh, his meeting with Peter, it doesn't really say, and we can't tell from other places in the New Testament, but that meeting wasn't to get validated by Peter. It was probably just to report to Peter about his success among the Gentile Christians and also just to have a Christian-friendly visit with Peter to ask, how is the work going in Judea? It wasn't to get authority from Peter. It wasn't to get approval from Peter. It was to meet Peter in Christian fellowship and brotherhood. 
Nevertheless, Paul's testimony spreads among the Judean Christians, and it shows the complete fruit of the gospel. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Notice he says the churches of Judea that are in Christ. This is in contrary to what you see in the rest of the New Testament, the synagogues of Satan. Those who were synagogues who never became Christian, which proves that they weren't true Yahweh worshipers to begin with. Verse 23, they, were one, they only were hearing it said, he who used to per- persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Paul's conversion, therefore, is proof of the power of God. What is, the, what is it proof of the power of God by? Because God has laid hold of a murderer and transformed him into the greatest apostle in the New Testament canon and possibly in, new, in, in all of history. Maybe not, but possibly. God can save the most wretched sinner. In fact, at, at one point, Paul later goes on to say that he was the chief among sinners. And everybody says they're vying for position. I just want to encourage you, you know, it is, it's kind of like this humbling thing, like to say, I'm the chief of sinners. And it is true in some sense, like if you knew the sins that I've committed, you would be appalled that Christ can receive me. But if you ever had an ounce of truth operating in your own heart, you would be able to say the same about yourself. But in case you can't, because your faith yet is not fully trusting in God, Here's what I think. I think that Paul was called eternally because of the Father's great love, but a secondary reason that Paul was saved is so that every other Christian, every other person who is desiring to place his hope in Christ can have absolute confidence. If Christ is willing to forgive someone who is murdering his children, then he can certainly forgive me. I know most of you, you have not done the sorts of sins that the Apostle Paul has done. If you despair at all that, you know, God can't forgive me. I'm this wretched sinner. I've done such horrible things. Take confidence. Take up faith. Look at the Apostle Paul and imagine what he did. We don't know how many he murdered or put in prison. We don't know how many churches he was able to shut down. Nevertheless, he was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ totally. Not only is it proof of the power of God, Paul's conversion also reveals the nature of the gospel as something wrought by God. And because it is wrought or carried out by God, therefore God alone deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would allow us with Paul to be zealous for your pure gospel, that we would not be zealous for the sake of the traditions of our fathers, even the good supposed good Christian things that we ought to, uh, that we are tempted from time to time to trust in, but that we would cling to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would convince us through the example of Paul and through your word that you are not only willing to offer us redemption and cleansing in the blood of Jesus, but that you are powerful and able Lord, as Paul's example shows us, you do not just wipe the slate clean, but you transform us and you deliver us from the present evil age. Father, I ask that you would, by your spirit, renew gospel hope in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.